Welcome to the RSA Events Podcast, the home of world-changing ideas and debate. Welcome to the RSA, welcome to the Great Room. I'm Andy Haldane, Chief Executive here. And also welcome all those online, there's many hundreds uh, joining us this evening online to this fantastic event. Um, the theme of the RSA this year was the question, uh, what could go right? And as one element of that, we've been asking ourselves, what could go right for governance of the UK? Uh, so about a month ago, we hosted uh, John McFall, the Lord Speaker, to speak about reform of the House of Lords, something issued close to Gus's heart. Uh, last week, we hosted uh, Chris Bryant, MP, talking about uh, reform of the House of Commons. And tonight, to complete the triumvirate, we, of course, are discussing reform of the third pillar uh, of the civil service with a fantastic, fantastic panel uh, of expert speakers, as you can see. Uh, kicking off will be uh, the RSA's very own Amy Gandon, fresh from a gr grilling by Nick Robinson this morning on Radio 4, <laughs> um, who has just produced uh, a fantastic report on civil on the civil service based upon a bunch of interviews. Amy will say a lot more about that in a second. Uh, the report itself, uh, which has been done uh, in collaboration with Reform, uh, is available uh, in the chat uh, and on the QR codes around the room for those that are interested. It's called uh, Civil Unrest. And then joining uh, Amy, we have two uh, expert commentators on her report. We have uh, Gus O'Donnell, uh, Chair of Frontier Economics, Chair of Pro Bono Economics, uh, a charity very close to my own heart, uh, and also, of course, uh, former Cabinet Secretary and Head of the Civil Service. Hard to think, actually impossible to think, of anyone uh, better equipped, more expert to talk about tonight's subject than Gus. No pressure, Gus. Uh, and then finally, uh, to Gus's left, we have uh, Charlie Pickles, uh, Director uh, of Reform who have been our partners, partnered with Amy on this report, and fantastic to be partnering with you this evening, uh, Charlie. Uh, and this forms part of their fantastic uh, reimagining uh, Whitehall series, which is uh, underway. So they will speak uh, in that order, then we'll pass across to some discussion in the room. So please come armed with uh, some questions. If you are online, you can post those questions in the chat on hashtag RSA uh, reform. And with that, and without any further ado, uh, please join me in giving a very warm welcome to Amy Gandon. Uh, thank you, Andy, and good evening, everyone. I'll start my remarks tonight with a confession. My name's Amy, and I am a recovering civil servant. <laughs> as I imagine are many of you in the audience here this evening, as well as some of my fellow panellists. And can I say what a huge honour it is to be on a panel with a man known affectionately to me and my former colleagues as God, Lord Gus O'Donnell, and with Charlie, with whom I've had the pleasure of collaborating, along with the reform team, um, on this report. I'd also just like to take a moment to thank my wonderful team of volunteers, and I can see some of them are in the room tonight, I think some of them are on, uh, online as well, who helped me to pour over the hundreds of thousands of participants' words to generate the analysis that is behind today's re report. You know who you are, and you know that I'm very grateful. And so, on to the report. 
which tells the story of 50 current and recent ex-civil servants who generously shared their experiences of working in government over the past few years. Theirs are voices that are barely heard in the increasingly vociferous debates about government effectiveness and reform. There are, of course, very good reasons for this. Civil servants are rightly restricted from speaking publicly about their work for the purposes of national security, or to create a safe and trusting space for policy discussions with ministers. Though whether those confidences have been reciprocated by ministers in recent years is another question altogether. But as it is, the debate about civil service reform is dominated by a narrow group of the most senior politicians, commentators and officials. And as a result, it will only ever speak to a correspondingly narrow set of concerns and understanding of what is driving them. So if I can refer your attention to this slide, some of you may be familiar with Sidney Yeshiba's Iceberg of Ignorance, the basic premise being that the issues that reach the attention of senior executives, and in our case, permanent secretaries or ministers, are a tiny, often sanitised share of what's actually going on in their organisations and departments. By contrast, rank-and-file workers, the like of which make up the majority of the civil servants that I interviewed, see much more of the sometimes ugly, often messy reality of what it actually takes to make government policy in practice. It's my firm belief that through engaging with these experiences, we can not only design much better reforms, but have a significantly better chance of implementing them successfully. And for me, perhaps most importantly of all, today's report injects some much-needed humanity into a debate that sorely needs detoxifying. The testimony of my participants shows that Far from an undifferentiated and obstructive blog, blob, blob, <laughs> civil servants are people, many of whom have worked more hours, under more pressure, and for less reward than ever before. Criticism by ministers and the media has not simply been absorbed by a faceless bureaucratic machine, but caused real people real hurt. And when we wonder, as we often do, why civil service reform is so hard to achieve, we must ask how reasonable it is to expect civil servants to enthusiastically embrace change imposed upon them with a healthy dose of hostility and mean-spiritedness. It is my heartfelt hope, as a former civil servant, that today's report, in shedding genuinely new light on age-old debates from short-termism to impartiality, from churn to performance management, can show that civil servants are far from a necessary evil, as one of my participants put it, but can and must be an indispensable partner in the journey to reform. So, before I offer a whistle-stop tour of the report itself, a quick note on how we reached its conclusions. Late last year, I conducted 45 to 60-minute interviews with 50 current and recent ex-civil servants. In each case, I asked them exclusively open questions, starting each time with tell me about your experiences of working in the civil service over the past few years. Each of those interviews were transcribed and then thematically analysed. You will see today, and in the report, a series of percentages. These do not, as they most first appear, reflect agreement to statements presented to participants, but rather the share of interviews in which a certain theme organically emerged in different participants' testimonies. As you see on this slide, this is not a representative sample of the civil service as a whole, focusing nearly exclusively on the policy profession, which is a small subset of the full service, and generally younger mid-ranking mid officials in policy-heavy departments. But while there are limitations, 
I would emphasize three things about the approach. One, there is something really pretty remarkable about participants working in entirely different departments for different ministers and on different policy areas sharing eerily similar and highly specific experiences of policymaking over the past few years. Those commonalities cannot be easily dismissed. Number two, these voices of primarily mid-level officials just haven't really been heard before on civil service reform. That they shed new light on long-standing debates is proof that this has been a gap until this point. And three, this is intended as stimulus for a much broader conversation. Those of you in the audience today, physical or virtual, I want to hear, are these your experiences as well? Or if not, where do they diverge? I'd love to instigate both a public, where people feel comfortable, and private conversation on the report's findings to see if they resonate with a wider sample of people. So, what does an insider's view into government over the past few years tell us? I will spare you the full 80-page rundown, and instead I want to share the eight takeaways that I found the most striking over the course of the research. First, and in fact, like I found in my own time as a civil servant, many of my participants had signed up to make a difference, but found it staggeringly difficult to do so in reality. When I made my own decision to leave the civil service after just five years in 2022, I remember speaking to friends and family that my work felt like swimming in far-setting concrete, frantic and strenuous exercise only to move inches at a time. Participants echoed this in their testimony, speaking about constantly running into blocks or failing to get traction, except in unicorn-like circumstances where funding, political capital, and a nexus of cross-government stakeholders were magically in alignment. You can practically feel the frustration in this quote from participant 15, who describes crying from the computer-says-no attitude of the system around them. It's not just politicians who find Whitehall bureaucracy exceptionally tedious. My second point tests a hypothesis I had at the outset of the research which is that something markedly changed from when I started in 2017 to when I left five years later. That is, that the policy-making machine had become an altogether more rushed and more reactive beast during that time. This came up, as I said before, organically, with remarkable frequency in interviews. 61% proactively raised concerns about the pace, about the quality, and about the stability of decision-making. Some linked this to the pandemic, with one participant describing an addiction to COBRA, Cabinet Office Briefing Room A, taking hold once ministers got a taste of making decisions much more rapidly than usual. It was remarkable how often participants referred to the lack of a long-term guiding mission for the government. There are a handful of quotes on the slide here, referring to there being at no time a clear internal narrative on what we were trying to do and why, or massive turn and ambiguity in strategic direction but I could have given you six or seven others that said something very similar. Others linked uh, this to instability within the government, with regular reshuffles or reversals of fortune generating a desire to announce things and generate positive headlines to protect their position, with a long-term um, implementation and impact, often a lesser or taken-for-granted area of focus. Participant 17 here impersonates a minister, anticipating a particular day in the diversity calendar and desperately seeking something, anything, to announce. And finally, a number of participants described a phenomenon where 
For all the frantic activity going on, nothing appeared to be changing. Some, like participant 19 here, attributed this to the fundamentally incremental, incrementalist ways of Whitehall, fiddling at the margins rather than having the guts or having the bandwidth to think in big, bold terms about the challenges of the day. Third, and perhaps not surprising to anyone keeping a watch on Whitehall over the past few years, nearly half mentioned that relationships with ministers had become markedly more difficult. And while some of this may reflect legitimate frustrations ministers have with the civil service machine, or as we will see, perhaps even legitimate distrust about their support for the government agenda, it appears to have had some unhelpful and concerning effects. For example, participants spoke about a more fearful environment linked to especially very senior civil servants' fears about losing their jobs, leading to officials over-promising on what could be delivered or withholding risks or negatives for fear of ministerial censure. These are the costs of a more closed and distrusting relationship between officials and politicians, as these two quotes sum up nicely. In place of a healthy back and forth, participants in some quarters, but of course not all, of government felt like a necessary evil to be tolerated and a mechanism to generate predetermined political conclusions rather than a valued partner in the policy-making process. As you can see participant 35 say, it's one thing to say, fundamentally, I take all your advice, but it's my priority to do this because of X, Y, Z. But it's another to say, no, I don't want to read it unless it's got these words on the top of it. Send it away, rewrite it. Fourth, and something which may shed some light on the previous theme, Participants referred to ministers' suspicions that they were in some way, civil servants that is, ideologically opposed to or actively obstructing the current government's agenda. And this is perhaps one of the most contentious findings from the research, but some of our participants felt there were problems with bias in the civil service. By no means in the sense that it is sometimes meant, i.e. a deliberate and organised campaign by officials to thwart politicians, but something altogether more subtle. Some described officials' discomfort with a particular policy decision sometimes getting expressed in perverse ways, for example, by citing probability of legal challenge or delivery risks. If I can refer your attention to the quote at the bottom, others described a phenomenon where civil servants exhibited eye-rolling superciliousness on either an ethical or intellectual basis around the current crop of ministers, trying to make their silly views sensible. And on the other hand, many strongly disagreed, like participant 42 here, and felt that suspicion of bias was sometimes meaning that challenging advice on the basis of evidence or of deliverability was being mistaken for willful resistance and its value disregarded as a result. And finally, the last three themes refer to the attractiveness of the civil service as a place of work. So number five... The role of senior civil servants, for whom many participants appear to have less and less respect. This was often linked to what more junior civil servants perceived as a lack of bravery in standing up for wrongdoing, including over party gate or negative briefing about civil servants in the media, or prioritising their own advancement over the needs and performance of their teams. Participants referred to the supremacy of small p politics in determining senior officials' promotion to high office, and this was linked to a staggering number of participants feeling the senior civil service was not for them. These quotes are just three of about ten I could have used to reflect this phenomenon, with participants just 
not wanting to be their senior leaders, often described as yes people. This is clearly of material concern for the pipeline of talent into critical roles that the public rely on being performed competently and by people of integrity. Six, this relates to employment in the civil service more generally, with the balance of pay, non-financial benefits and workload making it less, a less and less rational calculation to remain in post. These two quotes are indicative, but rather striking. Participant 35 refers to a foregone time when the civil service had a reputation for good work-life balance, but finding themselves working private sector hours for public sector pay, and wondering, what am I doing? And criticism in the media has had its part to play in this as well, as participant one says here, referring to the previous commitments under the Johnson government to cut the civil service back to its 2013 numbers. If I was looking at a business for my next job and they told me they were cutting headcount, moving all their staff out of the area I live in and publicly attacking their own staff, would I want to go and work there? No. And finally, number seven. While the civil service has well-known and long-lasting issues with, with churn, a preponderance of generalists over specialists and esoteric recruitment methods, what is perhaps not yet visible externally is how the pressures of Brexit and the pandemic may have added to these challenges. In particular, participants referred to the need to fill critical posts quickly, leading to many officials securing promotions ahead of schedule, describing it as open season for career advancement, with implications for grade inflation and the skills and experience available to ministers in key posts. I particularly enjoyed one participant's perception that, in the Department for Exiting the European Union, if you weren't a deputy director by 30, people would wonder what on earth was wrong with you. And my final eighth point, and what I would most like people to take from today, is that far from being that complacent or defensive blob I mentioned at the start, the civil servants I interviewed were full of ideas and appetite for reform. And in fact, many of them had ideas in common with some of the civil service's fiercest detractors, wanting a civil service that was more dynamic and efficient, more diverse, cognitively, socioeconomically, and ideologically, as well as in terms of protected characteristics, and more accountable. They also had plenty of bold suggestions for reform, from scrapping competency-based recruitment, to stronger management of poor performance, from pilots of smaller teams, to training in hard skills like statistics or delivery. As participant 28 puts it here, now, I couldn't stand Dominic Cummings, but I did think he was right, that the civil service sometimes lacks that ability to think outside the box, to think creatively, and to really problem solve. And I think as much as I didn't agree with the way he went about it, I do think he was right that it needs a shake-up, really, as a whole. And I think it's that final sentence I'd like to leave you with. Currently, it is as if the way we are going about it, the means of reform, is getting in the way of what are in fact quite common ends. Not only would the involvement of civil servants, especially mid-ranking ones like the, most of my participants, make for better design reforms, but it would also give them a following wind over the natural human response to fight, or in many cases seek flight, from the hostility of some reformers in recent years. So, Jeremy Quinn, Minister of the Cabinet Office, if you're listening, Lord Maud, if you're listening, perhaps even Sue Gray, if you're listening, let's try something radical. Let's have a civil servant's assembly on its own reform. 
and let's give government transformation the very best chance of success. The nation's problems are far too grave for yet another attempt to fix this to fail. Thank you. Thank you, Amy, for setting that out so uh, comprehensively and compellingly. And our first discussant is Gus. Thank you very much. So I've got about seven minutes. So I'm going to make about seven points. Uh, the first one uh, is, is really a general point about, uh, Andy said, it's, it's what could go right. And I'd like government to go right better. To get government to go right, we need to think about it in a more holistic way, in a sense of, if you're thinking about you're a Formula One manager and your car's not winning any Grand Prix, right? And you look at the engine and you look at the tyres and all the rest of it, that's fine. You can tweak them, you might improve them. But there's a driver as well. And when you think about government, you've got to think about the civil service and ministers. You cannot think about one or the other without thinking about both. And you need to improve both. And I have lots of ideas about how you might improve ministers, about how we might encourage more people to go into politics, how we might train them better, because, you know, we talk about training for civil servants. What do we talk about training for ministers? You know, so these things are taboo, right? We need to get into this far more. So that's number one, would be think of this as driver and, and car, both together, and you need to get them both right. Secondly... The whole business about reward uh, and money, uh, as a former permanent secretary of the Treasury, money's at the heart of everything. <laughs> Come on. Money matters hugely. And it matters in all sorts of ways. Uh, we talk about skill shortages. In, in, and I, I know, you know I, I employ now about 400 economists in Frontier Economics. We pay more than the GES, right? Uh, we attract uh, great people. I want them to go into the GES, but they come to us. Um, and, and we give them really, really interesting jobs. And we do not do 24-7. You know, we've got work-life balance, and we're built around the well-being of the staff and all the rest of it. So I am very aware that <clears throat> there is a real income gap. Now, as a former head of civil service, what did I do about this? And that's, I really feel guilty about having that term, because I, head of civil service, but you're not in charge of pay. In what sense are you the head of the civil service? I mean, it's just ridiculous, right? So we have a bonkers system at the moment that if you think about it, you're going through the ranks, you know, and you were particularly saying like junior levels, and you're in London, right? You're a policy person, because most of them are, apart from the wonderful Darlington. Um, you're trying to get on the property thing, and your income is rubbish, so you've got no chance. So if you're good and you want property, you'll get out. Right? The two people who remain will be the ones who aren't any good because they can't get out, therefore. So you're stuck with them, and we'll come back to poor performance. And the other group are the ones like my darling daughter, who uh, is a civil servant, and uh, her husband, who is a former civil servant, but like my daughter, gets on the property ladder because of the bank of mum and dad. Now, what does that do to the civil service of the future? It makes it incredibly non-diverse, Right? It distorts it radically. So some of the things we're thinking about, like, oh, diversity. Well, come on. You know, you've got to think about what's the policy that would change that. Policy that would change that is getting serious about pay. Right? And we could do, as a good Treasury person, we could do a bit of a pay pension trade-off. Because 
If you talk to your 28-year-olds about how many of them said to you, I'm staying here because of the wonderful pension. <laughs> right? We are all, as anyone that does behavioural economics will know, we're myopic, right? We don't see that pension for what it is, so we can cut that back. Uh, unfortunately, the way the accounts work, this won't help the Treasury at all, which is why Chancellor's refused it every time I put it to them, because the increase in pay will show up in the deficit. The reduction in future tax uh, the liabilities on pensions goes nowhere. doesn't reduce your debt. Right. Ah. Um, so we really need to do something about pay. When you talk about skills as well, you know, again, Frontier, we're doing loads of work on AI. Uh, there's really, really interesting stuff out there. We're just hiring more data scientists. We have to pay them quite a lot, right? You don't have those flexibilities inside the civil service. Um, we really need to be thinking about how do we encourage people, A, to stay in post longer, absolutely right, couldn't, couldn't agree more, and B, to get those skills where the market pays much more. And, and you can tell the things the civil service is bad at because of the, the difference in market pay. Procurement. If you're really good at this sort of stuff, your contract negotiator, you'll get paid a lot more outside and you know, you're interested in, in value for money, so curious enough, you create that to yourself. So there's lots of things where you can point to the skills we're bad at and say, actually, and curiously enough, those who come in with a really good public service ethos but can't add up, they don't, they're not quite so marketable, and so they stay. And they, these are the ones that I kind of, you know, said, for God's sake, you know, I, I need everyone to know their R squared from their elbow. And it, like, it's just important <laughs> that they understand, just as we'd love ministers who were required to do decision-making under uncertainty as a kind of requirement for whatever job you have, because that's what you're going to be doing. You are the decision-maker. Um, but alas, they don't. The HR processes, right? Um, these are bonkers. I, I couldn't agree more. This is in desperate need of reform. Um, I could refer to my um, uh, own experience, uh, family experience, where fast stream, right? In the fast stream, you move around departments uh, to get some experience. So when you've been in one department, the HR, God bless them, send you a list of, uh, there's, you know, name the 10 departments in priority order that you would like to go to. And then they don't send you to any of them. <laughs> now, I can understand not sending you a list and asking you for the 10 and just putting you somewhere, but giving you that piece of paper and then not, I mean, we're shooting ourselves in the foot, right? There's some really dumb things. When I started the Civil Service People Survey, the thing that hit us most was civil service is really bad at dealing with poor performance. And we tried various things. And it is very hard to change that culture of not wanting to be honest with someone about saying, actually, this work isn't for you. You're not going to do it. The nearest we came to making a big difference was when we had voluntary redundancy program and we kind of tapped people on the shoulder and said, look, really, you got in because you're bright, you've got great skills, you'll be better off somewhere else uh, because it's just not working out. So I would do those sorts of things. On innovation, I think we really do need to think about stimulating innovation in civil service because there are so many things. This has a complicated uh, way of coming out because of the way we deal with risk, because of the good old NAO that wants to put blame on people as opposed to encouraging them. Uh, so we need to have a much more innovative process that actually treats failure in the way that 
entrepreneurs treat failure as inevitable and a great learning experience and not as something that, that should hold you back forever. Um, I would like civil servants to be more accountable in the sense of, I have changed my views about this, I, I like the idea of more, uh, more evidence, more submissions being made public to, uh, because you know, I think good civil servants should fear nothing whatsoever from having the accountability to say, here are the pros and cons. You know, I've looked at the best evidence on this. Uh, I'd love to see the ones on things like HS2. They'd be just... <laughs> you know, I think it would make for... If I was putting my name to that, I'd want to make sure <laughs> that the cost-benefit analysis was really good. So uh, I think we could, we could make a huge difference by uh, much more public accountability. I do think in the system we need better training um, because things are changing. You know, uh, we are training people in, like I say, data science, uh, AI, all the time. Uh, and I think that should be happening pretty much everywhere. Uh, there's lots of things you need to, to learn about. That will be very good. And I think one of the things we're learning from uh, experience of crisis management, but from experience of, of doing other things as well, if you take it's just one example from COVID that I, that I mentioned during the evidence I gave. Um, if you want to advise ministers on something like, should we close the schools, right? Should we close the schools? The good old sage will give you the epidemiologists and they'll tell you the transmission effects and all the rest of it. And that goes to ministers. Um, what about the impact on the kids' education? What about the impact on the mental health of the parents? What about all sorts of other things related to that? How do you put them all together? Now, I wrote a very nerdy paper about how you might do that using Welby's. Um, but like, even if you just gave them a list and put the things together, it might have been better. Uh, and I think we've got ourselves in a place where we don't bring all of these different disciplines together. Now, there are, there are, my, my final point will be people who I, I blame for this. Uh, sometimes it's the, it's the professionals. Sometimes it's the scientists. I was just talking to some behavioural scientists the other day and I'm saying, look, stop sitting in your silos. Like when I first arrived in Treasury, I was stuck in the attic because I was a macroeconomic econometric modeller, right? Like, ooh, which meant you have to have a jumper with leather elbows, right? You were like never to be seen by the public, right? You're just a complete nerd. Um, and... You know, I was glad that various people like Terry Burns encouraged me to get out there and become a policy person and use economics. And, I said, and economists are, I've said this many times, like Japanese knotweed, they get in everywhere. They're like, you know, whether you want them or not, boom, we'll give you an answer. Um, the scientists are very much like to be up there in the, in the you know, and I said this to Patrick Valance, um, Patrick, you know, get them involved in policy, get them there, get grubby, get in there, get fighting, you know, behavioural scientists. Don't just be a behavioural scientist, be a policy person with behavioural science. You know, it's fantastic. Curiously enough, we're dealing about the public and how they behave. This is hugely important. And when you see something like COVID, where we mixed up health initiatives with uh, all the things like lockdowns and masks and trying to change behaviour, and all that, we need all of that together. So multidisciplinary stuff, I think, is, is really, really important. And I think that's probably the end of my time. So I'll uh, shut up. Gus, thank you for that. Fantastic. Charlie.
You really don't want to go last, do you? Particularly after uh, that tour de force there from um, Gus. Also, I'm afraid I'm from the dark side, so I was a political appointee uh, in government. I was also a history graduate, so, uh, so I give you that as the um, health warning to my comments. But I, I first just want to say what a fantastic report it is, Amy. It's been an absolute pleasure to work with you on it. But it is genuinely, honestly, it's such a fabulous, rich insight into, as Amy said, a group of people who you rarely hear uh, their perspective, their experience and their insight. So this is not the senior cohort. This is not the ministers, the politicians who we all know are very vocal. You know, this is, um, dare I say, the actual engine room, the people who are making things happen, doing the analysis, doing the work uh, in the heart of Whitehall. And um, it's a really nuanced report. And that's what I think is so encouraging, actually, about it. So I mentioned I come from the political side from my stint in government during the coalition years and many of the things that I and probably many others uh, who have worked on the political side um, feel are the shortcomings or the flaws or the challenges in Whitehall are absolutely captured and felt to just a stronger degree by many of those talented people some of whom are still there but regrettably many of them have left because of those frustrations in the system and you know why is it so important that we tackle some of these issues you've identified and that we in our reimagining Whitehall program are looking at, at reform because the quality of Whitehall impacts on everything else the state does and everything else the public sector does and so that nucleus that tiny group of people you talked about you know this is a very small group of people that but their impact is huge in our everyday lives and that's why it's so important I suppose just briefly because I do, and we've got a fabulous audience and I, I know we'll want to get to questions so I'm going to keep this very brief but I did just want to reflect again on the positive side uh, and I think that you know Amy you talked I think about the sort of vociferous nature of the debate that we've had but actually there's something I think really promising in the fact that this is such a big topic at the moment and the fact that if we do get past some of the um, less palatable behaviours and some of the more aggressive um, commentary, which I think is deeply unhelpful and your report shows, actually there's a phenomenal amount of common ground between these different people uh, who are calling for change. Um, and I think the particularly interesting part of it is actually that many of these things are, I guess, you know, you would say... In, in maybe three brackets. So you've got leadership challenges. And we did a big paper where we actually talked to former cabinet secretaries and permanent secretaries and cabinet ministers. And a lot of the challenges around the senior civil service and particularly permanent secretaries, some of the group think, some of the feeling that actually there wasn't enough focus on delivery and it was all uh, much more about the sort of small p politics as it comes out in your paper. But sort of some of those frustrations with people at lower grades looking up and saying, I don't want to be that person. I don't, you know, that's terrible to say in a system. But actually, um, many of those themselves in those levels we found also share some of that frustration. So you've got a leadership challenge, um, which I think a lot of people would say uh, needs addressing. You've also got some of these cultural challenges and you know um, everyone has touched on this but the sort of incrementalism the kind of risk aversion the sort of um, the lack of space for creativity uh, or innovation as Gus puts it um, I think is a massive issue and a real frustration again both for the ministers who want to get things done and try things and yes of course there are some terrible ministers just as there are some terrible, terrible civil servants but actually there are also some good ones and again your report talked about where you get that fusion of a great minister who does have a vision uh, and then civil servants who are talented and able and want to deliver against it. You know, that's the magic. That's what we have 
to get to, but there isn't the space for that. And the system, you know, it's kind of, you know, it's systemic that it's not there. Um, and then the HR, uh, which everybody I talk to talks about, and, you know, Gus put it brilliantly, um, Amy, you talked about it, it's in your report. Um, but that's sort of the fact that you have, you know, if, if you want if you want a great organisation, everybody knows it, right? Every leader knows that the success of your organisation is about the people you have in it. And the experience of the people in it is linked to everyone else you have, right? The team dynamic. And if you're in a team and you're looking around and you're saying, why the hell is this person still here? Because they're a poor performer. You know, why is it when I look around, I, you know, I'm, I'm putting my all into it. You know, I've done all the training. I am a scientist or a STEM grad or, or whatever it is. And yet I look around and I feel I can't get the promotion in the role I'm in. So what, I'm going to have to go to another department and learn a whole other, you know, area and set of skills. You know, the system is not designed to keep the best possible people doing the best possible work they can. Um, and that's why people leave. And that's why we end up with, you know, poor delivery of the priorities that government has and again that's a frustration for the people working in the system and it's a frustration for the ministers and the politicians who look and go well this machine isn't built to deliver so I am actually really positive I may not sound it in some of those reflections but I'm really positive that I think there is this consensus I think there is an appetite to change I think there's a real appetite as Amy you bring out in the report and as we have in our work for a much more radical actually rethink you know what would it look like to blow up the current HR model that seems to be holding back Whitehall you know what would that mean what does that shake up fundamental shake up actually look like and I think that the fact that we've got an election coming up, we're going to have a new government, whatever that looks like, who's going to need to have a machine. You know, we're living in an era of crisis. They're going to need a machine that can deliver and deliver quickly. These are exactly the observations and the challenges that if we can overcome them, then we can get back to a much more effective, prosperous and competitive state. Listen, three brilliant um, commentaries there uh, on this issue. And I'm going to ping one question myself, actually drawn from pre-submitted question, but prepare your questions. I'll come to you in just a minute. Um, one of the pre-submitted questions was about pandemic experience, which many would say was the civil service working really effectively with politicians, with ministers, with the private sector, with civil society. Why can't we bottle that and do that in wartime, peacetime as well as wartime? Amy, why can't we do that? I think I'd, I'd issue a slight note of caution. Um, <laughs> I think we're obviously watching uh, very live um, the COVID inquiry um, unfolding, and I think that, that that doesn't give an exclusively glowing report of how uh, the UK responded to the pandemic. However, um, I will say that, that, that actually lots of the participants to the research did say there were positives, that there was sort of an unlocking of what can be the sort of risk aversion um, that you see sometimes in policy making to kind of really imagine, you know, here is a problem. What could the ra a radical solution that, that kind of fits the bill actually look like? Mm -hmm. And there was a preparedness for ministers to go out on a limb actually to support civil servants and empower them to deliver and to deliver things quickly. I will say, and obviously I said in my opening remarks, you know, one of the participants referred to kind of an addiction to COBRA, that ministers kind of got used to being able to do things, you know, decide things and then enact things very quickly. And that has a time and a place. Yep. It doesn't solve long-term systemic issues. Um, so I'd say you want to kind of preserve and com continue to remind the civil service and politicians that they can do things quickly. They might not always want to do them quickly. 
Um, the one thing, I was, a, I was a cabinet office civil servant during the pandemic. I'm not going to speak about those experiences because I, I still need to be somewhat professional. Um, but I will say, and, and I was watching Gus's uh, remarks at the COVID inquiry, I will say one of the things that we really need to learn is um, about join up in government. Um, uh, uh, you know, I, I, I worked in some of the areas where you really needed the kind of individual sort of obsession with your own ministerial portfolio, be it health, be it the economy, um, to not be sort of marked so territorially and for there to be more teamwork in government. We saw that as a result, there was insufficient sometimes consideration of what the long-term health implications might be of the economy, um, you know, being shut down in the way that it was. Yeah. So I think I'd, I, I wouldn't want to bottle the inability yeah. to kind of join up, join up and for government to, government to team sport. So, you know, we should be team players. Very good. Uh, Gus Charling. So I would say, I mean, one of the things about COVID, and I, I, I really, really hope we, we find a way not to make this mistake because we're making it at the moment, is we are inquiring into how we managed COVID which is the wrong question. The world managed COVID in different ways, with different outcomes. We need, therefore, to study the world. You know, curiously enough, whenever I've done experiments, sample size of one doesn't really work, right? <laughs> right? You've got lots of countries. They all did different things. Same virus. Um, we can learn, right? But I think when, when you think about... Uh, I think you were very generous in saying that we, we did all this very well because... <laughs> It doesn't look that, like that, I can tell you. Um, you need to read your WhatsApps. And, and, <laughs> sorry, they've all been deleted. Yeah. Um, but the, uh, I, I do think it's, it's the multidisciplinary bit that we missed. Um, I do think we need to think about, in crisis terms, yes, it makes a lot of sense to modify your procurement rules, to do all sorts of other things. Question mark, does it make sense to keep them all the time? Uh -huh. Parliament was very much sidelined in all sorts of ways during COVID for probably good reason in many respects, but it did have very, so lots of negative consequences that I think we all are beginning to see un unravel now. So uh, I think, yes, you, fast decisions in terms of crisis, when you need to move quickly, we need to do that. Uh, there are some advantages of the ways we do this. I did a radio series, real hit this, called In Praise of Bureaucracy. Yeah. <laughs> um, everyone loved that. But there are virtues to bureaucracy. You know, it has ways of treating people fairly and making sure that you know, uh, lots of things happen in the right way. So um, I do think we need to learn. Um, and, and there are lots of skills. I think a lot of people that are inside will have learned a lot. Yep. Uh, I think a lot of civil servants and a lot of ministers will have learned a lot. I think the one thing that comes out of it, which, which I did pick up in my, my evidence inquiries, if you think about one of the determinants, when they do this study that I want about who did well or not, trust comes out really, loud, really big as a factor which helps you do better when people trust government. Massively important. And if you think about what you want to do with making government better, it will be building trust and respect between government and civil service. And I'm talking, I'm doing a little project of my own with current uh, cabinet secretaries from around the world. Uh, and I'm going to report in Singapore in January on that. And I'm looking at how they're coping with all of these different things. And the one thing they all say is, and it's, it's you know, the Singaporeans have it completely, trust and respect between ministers and civil servants. Um, 
and very high pay. Very high pay. So obviously the Singaporeans have got it pretty much right. Slightly more authoritarian as well, arguably. Slightly. <laughs> not but anyway, perfect, we were exactly. We were, we were, so did you add on this one? Or? Yeah, very briefly. Um, so what I would say is, where we were good, we were very, very good. Where we were bad, we were very, very bad. Um, and so I think it is quite a mixed picture. I think the things that were really important. Um, in terms of the bits that were good was this, the kind of um, real focus on a mission. And, you know, I think we, I mean, it comes out again in the report, you know, you have to actually have a purpose and a vision for where you want to go. And if you don't have that, how are you trying to motivate the people that are supposed to be delivering it? And I think that laser focus on a single mission was really, really important to success. Um, you know, we, we I do think some of the, you know, bureaucracy, so I think the way I'd say it is bureaucracy is good as if it is in the service of outcomes. Bureaucracy is bad if it's in the service of process. Yes. And too often we find that bureaucracy is in the service of process. Now, I think what we saw in the um, pandemic is actually that shifted to the outcome. Yeah. And bureaucracy was better and we stripped away layers, you know, clearance, constant levels of clearance and hierarchy and stuff is another thing that comes out as a frustration. I think we, we did manage to really streamline that. Um, but you know, we've touched on the complexity point. You know, we, we were terrible at understanding cascading risks. We weren't thinking about you know, the knock-on impact of taking a decision here and what would happen over here. You know, I think if we looked back on the school closures, we would take very different decisions. Um, and I think we're gonna see a far more damaging lasting legacy from having taken um, that decision than the impact that you know the pandemic itself had, um, the cross-government stuff people have said, I mean, that, that, that didn't work in many ways. And actually just taking a step forward, I know the question was on the handling of the pand pandemic, but actually we were so poorly prepared despite the fact that we had been identified as being one of the best prepared. You know, the fact that the Department for Education had no plan for if there was a pandemic about what they would do about exams in schools. You know, the Treasury had no plan for what would happen to the economy. And actually, that is a failing of the civil service institution itself. That's nothing to do with ministers. And that, I think, is a, is a problem. Great. Let's go to the um, great answers there. A couple of questions from the audience. Just wait for the mic. I think your hand was up first, sir. And then... Hi, uh, my name is Dennis, uh, Dennis Ranya. Uh, the accent is from the Netherlands and it's something to do with the uh, question as well. So first thing is that I can hear from all the comments, and thank you for the report, I haven't read it yet, but thanks for the summary, is that um, there are multidisciplinary working, uh, the, the different parts need to work better together, HR is a problem, etc. But isn't there an elephant in the room as well? If I compare it to other countries, kind of funding is that you had a lot of austerity problems. And isn't money kind of the elephant in the room? And it just needs more money. You can, ha you can list a whole bunch of reasons. And yes, part of that is salaries, but isn't, isn't money a primary function first, getting more money into the civil service to be able to solve all these things? I'm going to address that question to the former Permanent Secretary of the Treasury. <laughs> um, <laughs> there, there are two things there, really. Getting money into the civil service. So it might well be that we need to spend some money to get the right civil service. I would say, actually, I would probably, if I had more money, use it to improve quantity and reduce quality. Right? Sorry, to improve quality <laughs> and reduce quantity. That's it, yeah, P and Q, you know. Um, so, um, so, yeah, I think, I think that would work. Um, uh, I mean, if you're saying you referred, though, to austerity, and that, of course, is, is a rather different thing about was the country in a, in a prepared state and did we have 
I mean, yes, during the austerity years, local authorities ended up uh, being starved of funds, so they weren't in a good place. I remember post-SARS doing the pre-pandemic plumbing, we, we brought PPE, and then as the years went by, I'd left, and they used it up. Well, you can hardly surprise, you know, they were running hot, and therefore it wasn't happening. Um, so I think there is a question about, a valid question about size of state we want. Uh, but I think it's important that we have that within the question of, but there isn't any cakeism going on here. You know, we're not going to say like, yeah, we can spend more money on all of this, but that means we're going to have to tax more, right? So I think we need to think about what kind of state do we want, and then you know, not being ridiculous about saying, but we're going to have that and we're going to have really low taxes as well. And this is going to be fantastic because the low taxes are going to stimulate growth. And Mr. Laffer there can explain to you <laughs> precisely why all this adds up. Well, you know, uh, there's a lot of um, wishful thinking going on there. I think we need to have a grown-up debate. I can see very successful states which are high tax, high spend. The Scandies would be a classic example. And there are also other examples around the world that aren't quite the same. But... You know, I think that, that's the debate we need to have. I think we need to avoid the question of throw money at everything. That question here. Uh, my name is Ronnie Moorcroft. Gus, you and I know each other. Ronnie King, yes? Mm -hmm. um, I want to talk about ethnic minorities and I want to talk about the attack on um, what is happening in the civil service. 32 years I served, I got my MB for education and skills, as you know. It was very fortunate when you ran it as God, and we had <laughs> David Normington running the Department of Employment, and we had Lord Bichard, but we also had ministers who we would have died for. We had, Peter, we had people like um, Estelle Morris, who resigned because she said she wasn't up to the job. David Normington and I with a bunch of flowers and cried and said, please stay, and she said no. We had Michael Portillo who came down and sat on our desks and left a letter for every one of us explaining why the departments had to be put together. And that sort of cohesion is something that's missing here. You both, Bank of England, obviously, and you coming from your part, it isn't about that. The money is important. I live on my pension and I do all my craziness around that. It's about why do you get up in the morning? Are you valued? This business, how would you stop this about, you know, take away every diversity and equality officer and put somebody in there working in a department who's going to do a job? How can you do that when you know of the unrest that there is already and we've made huge strides in equality and diversity and this is absolutely criminal? Can you put your hands up, everybody in this room, as a civil servant and who feels the same way as I do? that unless we are valued, I still consider myself a civil servant. I'm your grandmother. <laughs> I was 73 last Wednesday. But that's my question to you. How do we get back from having... You asked, why can't we go back to COVID? Because we worked in small teams. We felt valued. We were saving the world. Mm. We were doing things that were wonderful. How do we get back to that? Hands up. Serving civil servants? Right, okay. How many of you feel that you are valued? I mean, that, Amy, was just shocking. Shocking. How do we get back to that, Gus? 
And say hello to Kirsty for me. She never came to Sri Lanka. She should have, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Rani. And That's her colour. Nice part. to have an impromptu referendum halfway through as well. Um, <laughs> they always go well. Who wants to pick up on Rani's question? Amy, you want to say? Uh, Charlie? No. Uh, go yes. ahead. I'll, I'll, I'll start. But I, I mean, to me, there, there was a guy, I mean, he was yeah, in the civil service, and he said it's all about four Ps, pride, passion, pace, and professionalism. And to me, that was kind of what it should be. We should be really proud of what we do. We should be passionate about delivering for the government of the day as well as we can. And we should do it with pace and professionalism, which was my point about trying to get rid of the bureaucracy. And I do remember in Treasury getting very, very frustrated that I had three bosses who would countersign my bloody submissions <laughs> and put on it, not a bad effort from O'Donnell. And, <laughs> Sometimes a lot worse than that, I can tell you. Um, so, yeah, there are, there are layers we could get rid of. I, I think there are all sorts of ways we could improve it. But instilling that pride and passion in what people do, and that's kind of, you know, that's got to be part of it. We're never going to pay market-leading wages, but we can actually get people doing, as, as, as you mentioned, fantastic jobs, great responsibility, really early. I mean... I always say to people, go into the civil service. It will be great. You know, we will get good ministers again. Um, and, and some of them are, you know, there's always going to be a mix and you have to learn to live with them and, and work together with them. But it is such a significant job. And you know, the, ca the capacity to, to make the world a better place is, is just great. That's Can I just add a really quick point, yeah. which is that the, the, so you know, there are lots of percentages in the report. The highest percentage, the most common theme, even though the civil service have been you know, buffeted by all kinds of criticism in the media, was their ongoing commitment to making a difference. I think it was 71% mentioned that, again, apropos of nothing, voluntarily offered. Commitment to making a difference and pride that what they did served the country and served the public. Um, a huge amount is obviously resting on that, as you say, in particular when we think about constraints on, on, on pay, and it's been pushed really, really hard and really far recently. Um, and I think that's you know, one of the main motivations for doing this report was to actually show the human side of the civil service, actually how much suffering civil servants have, have faced in, you know, because it's been such a kind of toxic and difficult environment in some quarters. So I hope this actually starts to shift that dynamic and make people realise that civil servants are human. Um, yeah. I'm going to take a question on this side and get Charlie to pick it up. And I think the gentleman at the back was hand was first up. Thanks, Andy. And I suspect this is the closest I'll ever get to God. <laughs> <laughs> but as a more senior civil servant, ex-senior ex civil servant, I wanted to ask um, things like the death of David Kelly. Do you think that ever affected the fundamental ethos for the civil servants looking after their ministers? Oh, that sounds a bit paranoid, but mm. events such as that. Mm. Do you want me to do that? I mean, I, I have no idea. <laughs> yeah. Um, it, it, this, was, this was going back to the Iraq inquiry and, mm. and all the rest of it, and um, it was an incredibly sad case. Uh, David Kelly, a, a scientist. And I think it affected everybody who is around that uh, case, you're absolutely right. And I think it made us all think very carefully about the, the ethics of what we do and particularly the question of briefings. You know, there were, there were briefings going on that just shouldn't have happened. 
and that was yeah. a very bad part of it. So, yeah, it's, it's, I think there are lots of uh, individual cases where you look back on them and you, and you learn from all of these, and you learn that the system, if the system goes wrong, it can go terribly wrong. Thank you. Um, down the front here. Hi, um, Frances McClellan. I was one of the contributors to the report. And I just had a question. There was something that came through really strongly with the participants around this kind of political instability. And I think that speaks to a lot of the short-termism um, that people were seeing, the pace of policymaking being really fast, the focus on announceables, um, changing of ministers, and really that, I would say, the overarching lack of vision that's already been mentioned. So in the face of that, you know, that kind of political instability, what, can, what kind of civil service reform could we do that would address that? Or, you know, what are the kind of problems there that we could look to solve? Charlie. It's a great question. Um, thank you. So um, I'm, I'm going to make a prediction which could turn out to be very, very wrong. Uh, but um, I don't think we will see going forward the same degree of political instability. And I do think it is worth just rooting what we've seen in the, in the context, right? We, we have lived through a, a decade or just over a decade of repeated crisis. You know, if you think about we started with a financial crash, you know, we could, book it end, could have bookended it with the pandemic, apart from then we had Ukraine, the cost of living crisis, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Um, look where we are now uh, with the current Israel Gaza situation. So, so I think there is something about the current context and what has happened. Um, now, clearly, the political instability is profoundly unhelpful if you're trying to address long-term problems. I'm also not sure the government really, I mean, other than people talk about pensions and the Turner uh, review and reforms, I'm not sure we have another example of where, even outside of the last kind of few years of turbulence, government has been brilliant at long-termism. I think that's a much bigger question, actually. Um, and I think the system itself probably does need to think about um, what are the components you would need in order to drive much more long-term thinking. You know, a lot of people default to saying we need to just take it out of politics. But for me, that feels like a very anti-democratic uh, move to make. You know, if we take all of the important long-term uh, decisions about the country out of the politics, then where are we at that point? You know, where are the, where's the citizen engagement? Where's the ownership by the people? Like, that, that feels wrong. But clearly, something has to um, shift. I think, um, I think, though, even where we've had the churn in ministers, and, you know, it's fascinating, one of the, the, the sort of so totally obvious, but the fact that it said it really brought it to life, Amy, in your report, was someone said, the amount of time we have spent on writing new briefing packs for ministers, you know, that just, it just so brings it to life for me, that, you know, you're, you could be spending time working out how to solve these problems, you could be spending time thinking about all oh, that delivery challenge we've got, or how can I upskill myself, and instead you're writing the next lever-arch file, and they are huge, you know, when I, I remember going when we were in, uh, went into government and sheesh the amount of paperwork that civil service managers to produce is sort of unholy um so you know even just did anyone that, read it yes i read every page gus and i can't believe you're challenging <laughs> me on that <laughs> um, uh, we had lee lewis who was fabulous at, at walking us through it and yeah. a very experienced uh, pamsec um, when we went into the dwp but but i do think there is i think nonetheless I think there's still a challenge back to the civil service, and I come back to the leadership point here, and this again came through very strongly, is that actually a lot of the people that, Amy, you spoke to, felt like the senior leadership um, were not really trying to overcome some of these challenges, um, that there was a kind of sense of 
really just that focus on you're rewarded for the ministerial service as opposed to potentially you know focusing on those bigger challenges and I think there's something about the incentives the accountability structures you know Gus I mean Jonathan Slater who sits on our steering group for our reimagining Whitehall has done a great paper talking about how you create that greater transparency yeah. transparency would be another yeah. thing if we could get better on that I think that would drive better behaviors I think there is a whole host of things you can do without trying to address the politics which by definition, you know, the civil service is that counterweight, right, to the political turbulence, and, and we need to see that as a really strong counterweight to that. Brilliant, I'm a couple of questions on this side, then we'll have to draw things to a close. We'll go here, and here at the back. Hi, uh, thank you. Um, I wanted to touch on something which hasn't really been discussed, which is the use of private sector consultancies. So lots of <laughs> young people I speak to who are public sector oriented, they won't go to work in the civil service. They'll say, I'm gonna go work for a private sector consultancy and then do public sector work. And they'll get paid twice as much or more and um, like potentially better training, higher impact, see it as more meritocratic, more projects. And I mean, there's been like a, what, 75% increase in the last few years. And I guess I think that, well, that that's creating like a positive feedback loop where you, the more you rely on public private sector, the more, oh, well, I'm going to be able to do more public sector work in a private consultancy, more training there, more attractive, everyone goes there. And then I've also heard that sometimes senior positions rely upon people who were trained in private sector consultancies, like Kate Bingham is the like, obvious example that comes to mind. So like, how, how do you break that cycle? Is it possible to, and like, how do you compete with, with that setup? Right, I'm going to take the second question. What we need is someone on the panel who's the chair of a, Private sector consultancy, don't we? Um, <laughs> uh, here. Thank you. Um, I'm Sally. I'm a civil servant. Um, I relate and align with a lot of what's been talked about today and what's in the report. Um, you mentioned that 88% of the participants were from the policy profession. Um, I also work for the policy profession. Um, and I'm quite interested in the panel's views on kind of when it comes to capability, what do you see the role in professions, whether that's specialists like engineering, science, legal profession, versus some of the more broader professions like policy, operational delivery, in unlocking kind of a more skilled, capable civil service in the future. Two great questions. Mm. Why don't we just go down the line and pick up whichever one of those you want to pick up, Amy? I'll talk about private sector consultancies. Um, I worked on the COVID pandemic. There was a huge influx of private sector consultants during that time. And I think for kind of understandable reasons in some ways, because we just needed a rapid influx of people who could, you know, pick up a brief and, and, and do it quickly. Those are skills that some, well, many civil servants have, but also, also private sector consultants do as well. Um, I would probably dispute, though, that private sector consultancies get access to you know, all of the same work that civil servants do. I, I found, at least in my time, I don't know if other civil servants would agree, that where, where it came to something that was actually quite politically delicate or sensitive, they wouldn't actually give that work to private sector um, consultants. And that is an area in which civ being a civil servant, if you are kind of interested in politics, or you are kind of, you do are sort of public service oriented, that, you know, actually, it, you still get more bang for your buck in terms of that stuff by being a civil servant rather than being a private sector um, consultant, um, I would say. Um, obviously, though, it, you know, there, there is a problem with pay um, in the civil service, and we've spoken about that already. I will just say that it was quite nuanced in terms of what the, civil, uh, the participants to the research said about pay. So they said that on the one hand, um, you know, in particular senior civil servants, 
given the level of responsibility that they had, um, you know, they, they were generally quite underpaid, and so were the entry-level kind of graduate jobs. But actually, in the middle, you know, you could have a level of responsibility and um, you know a level of difficulty in your in your work that would actually merit you getting paid 60. 60k or, or there or thereabouts as a, as, a, as a grade seven or a grade six. So it's quite a nuanced picture. And so in terms of you know, displacing some of that private sector consultancy, I think it's actually a more complex picture. They're not stealing all of the work. Yes, I, I would, yes on, on the consultancy's question, it's interesting you say that because my talking to various cabinet secretaries around the world, uh, just recently the Australian one, and they're going through a period where they've, they've used lots of consultants and he now thinks they've massively overdone it and wants to bring it back a lot. Mm. And um, in my experience, I mean, consultants can be incredibly useful at time. And I have to say, it, since I chair Frontier Economics, <laughs> you know, and, and uh, I did, to be perfectly honest, uh, chair the Public Interest Board of PwC. So I do know about private sector consultancies. They can be very useful in the sense of, if you think about, I'll take the Frontier example, which I know very well. We've got economists who've spent most of their careers doing competition issues or economic regulation issues, mm. right? You haven't got anyone in government who has spent all their time on that subject, right? You might have some in regulation, but, but basically these people have seen all sides of it because they're not work just for a regulator. Sometimes we work for a regulator, sometimes we work for a company, sometimes we work in, in government and, and there may be global, different countries as well. So you can get consultants who've got skills that you are not going to get inside the private sector and if, with the pay constraints you're, you're obviously going to get you know, uh, uh, a, a wider range of people open to you. But you really, really want to be careful about outsourcing core skills where you want to carry on going. You want to get a consultant in who can teach you something and the best consultants will then say, right, that's it, we've, we've taught your people to carry on doing it, you carry on from now. Unfortunately, I happen to know the consultant's model now rather well, <laughs> and it's whatever you do, cross-sell. Mm. Get in there, make yourself indispensable. You just need to look at like, McKinsey and the BBC, you know, all over there. I mean, <laughs> so, I mean, and, and they just get, you know, they, that's their, that's, you know, they're making money, for God's sake. So I think you need to be careful about using them in the right way. Um, Sally's uh, thing about policy skills and all the rest of it, I... I I think it's really important that we get people who understand how to use these different skills. And I think we all need to understand a bit of all of those subjects. You cannot sit there and say, oh, I'm not going to do this behavioural stuff, this is woolly, ugh. you know, I don't really want to get into that. Or I'm not going to try, I'm not going to try and understand the science because it's a bit too complicated. I think we need to be good enough and to have the basic education to be able to get an understanding of these things. And really good people, really good experts, can teach you it really quickly uh, and, and explain it in a way that comes through. Because ultimately, we're going to put this to our decision maker, mm -hmm. our minister, and we've got to explain it all to him. So if we get it all, you know, then I don't think we can expect our, us to do a very good job in giving ministers really clear advice about the decisions they've got to make. Uh, so on the first one, consultancy, I spent a couple of years as a uh, in a big consultancy, and I hated it. Uh, 
and um, there was no comparison. I mean, as I say, I was a political appointee, but I, you know, I worked in DWP. I loved my time there. I loved the problems that we were trying to solve. You know, really feeling like you were making a difference. You're invested in it. Actually, the access you get, as Amy, you say, is you know not comparable to being in a consultancy. Um, so uh, you know, I, I I think there is you know so many um, benefits that you can't get in a consultancy. But look, you identified all of the re all of the way we could make government more attractive versus consultancy. Right, you talked about project based work being able to do different things. You know, if we were actually better at breaking down the silos, you could do that, right? Multidisciplinary teams, we talked about pay, it's not the only thing, but we could make it more competitive if we decided to do it. You know, you identified all the things we could do to mean that young people, talented people wanted to come into government and didn't want to go to consultancy. I think on the generalist specialist thing, you know, it's a kind of perennial debate, isn't it? And I, I, I suppose I, um, most people always sit and say, gosh, we just, we just need all the specialists. I'm actually, I mean, probably because I'm a generalist, so, you know, a uh, slight bias here, but, you know, I think there's huge value in generalists. I really do. The point is you need both. And what we have at the moment is a system coming back to this issue around siloed. It's because it's not just siloed in terms of DWP doesn't talk to whatever on earth the business department is called today or you know kind of dfe doesn't etc you know it's not just that you're siloed within departments you know i was in the dwp dwp when we were doing universal credit and you know we're not going to details exactly about the ins and outs of that but you know the fact that the it was totally separate to the workforce development that was totally separate to the policy you know it's ludicrous right so you've got these great generalists but actually they need to be talking to the people who understand what it looks like on the ground and what it's going to take to implement it so i don't have any problem with generalists i think it's a phenomenal skill to be a problem solver ultimately which is what a policy specialist is right and you should be able to take those skills and apply it to wherever you go of course you need a degree of knowledge but actually it's about pulling in the rest of that expertise so that you get the best possible outcome that you're trying to get and the thing is ultimately deliverable right we're into overtime but i can't resist one last question it's an online question uh, on the panel um short answers panel if it's all right it's a futuristic question I want you to imagine how the civil service might be in the year 2050. Or even how you'd want it to be mm -hmm. in the year 2015. Starting to my far left. <laughs> With apologies, Charlie. No, I knew that was coming to me first. That's absolutely fine. Um, I'm going to do how I'd like it to be. I'd like it to be a smaller nucleus. Uh, so I'm talking about Whitehall here. So there's a whole question about civil service more broadly and yep. the people who work on it. But talking about this area, I want it to be a lot smaller. I want it to be a lot more dynamic. I want it to be a lot more agile. I want, I want automation and AI to have been deployed in a way that means that people are really using the human skills the relationship building, the problem solving we've talked about. Um, and I want to have a fabulous uh, set of ministers who we've attracted the brightest and the best to work with the brightest and the best in the Whitehall who are really well paid. And so it's the most attractive place to go and work. Fantastic. Gus. So uh, 2050, the ministers will have gone to university to study how to be ministers. <laughs> Uh, they will have degrees in being ministers, right? And they will come through and they'll, they'll work in local uh, government and they'll work their way through, right? And yeah, exactly. None of them do this, right? It's just what, a, what a, you know. There's quite a lot of councillors that are MPs. I mean, oh, yeah. No, I'm not sure that's a good some, thing. But... but, you know, get some experience along yeah. the way, you know, see if you're good. Um, I think that's not bad. So there'd be them. Um, the civil service would be full of creative people. Yeah. 
because virtually all of the other stuff, the AI will be doing, because we'll have gone digital, we'll have sorted all that out, and they will all be thinking about how digital systems fail. So what is it about the humans you're dealing with which makes the digital systems not work? So they'll be doing that interaction, which requires you to be incredibly creative. And this, this comes up actually with the PwC, thinking about audit. You know, audit can completely be done by A, totally, right? But the thing is, and so you, instead of a sample of journals, you look at the whole lot, because the computer can do it all. But what you're looking for is how the humans can think about looking at the program to work out how to get around it to actually commit a fraud, right? So it's quite creative, and you're looking at how, how, where are those gaps, and how can we creatively do lots of different things, and how can we creatively think about what the risks are in this world where AI is running everything, and then, you know, they haven't got Asimov's four laws in there, so ugh, they're all going to kill us. Um, so there you go. Oh, that took a turn, didn't it? Yeah. <laughs> right, yeah um, that thing. would be fun. And Amy? Um, I'll be quick. Some hopes and a fear. Um, I would just echo what Charlie says about kind of actually how could we um, deploy automation and AI in a way that actually really helps the civil service and in particular really helps the public. When we talk about the skills that are automated, one, the things that are left behind that cannot be automated are often to do with empathy, um, are to do with kind of participation and um, involvement of, of, of people and, and citizens, and ultimately that is what the civil service is there to do. So I would hope that the civil service is therefore able to be much more responsive and to engage in a much more human way with the people that it serves. My fear, however, is that, you know, when was the Fulton Report? 68? Yeah. yeah, I mean, that's longer than the time we have. Um, to get to 2050. Yep. All the things that were said in the Fulton Report still stand today. So that is my final plug to say that one thing we haven't really tried is have a really comprehensive kind of participative engagement with the civil service to make reform happen. Um, and that is why we should do it, so that we are in the right place by 2050 rather than where we are now. Wonderful. Well, listen, the witching hour is definitely upon us. Uh, should we bring this to a close? Uh, we've overrun because it's been such a fascinating discussion, a set of questions. Thank you, everyone, for coming along and for all your fantastic questions, those in the room, uh, those online, so we can get to more of them. I will pass them all on to the participants, and they'll send you written answers uh, after. <laughs> um, if you're an RSA fellow, you need not stop the conversation. You can continue the conversation on our digital platform, which is called Circle. And because it's Monday, there's nothing on TV, no reason not to. Continue the conversation on Circle. Uh, don't forget to read Amy's report. Mm. And indeed, uh, Charlie's Forward as part of that, um, which is brilliant and well worth a read for those that haven't done so already. And it only remains uh, for me uh, and to ask you to thank our fantastic panel this evening to Amy, to Gus, and to Charlie. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, head to our YouTube channel for inspiring talks, interviews and animations.